The COVID-19 pandemic gave the general public a crash course in virology. There were stories explaining the SARS-CoV-2 virus, its mutations and variants amid news headlines of burgeoning infections and deaths worldwide. Amid the awful headlines was the good news of the development of vaccines and antivirals to battle the scourge. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to molecular virology and novel antiviral therapies in light of the pandemic. That's the focus of this episode of The Pursuit of Precision, the Science Advancing Individualized Medicine. I'm Kathy Werzer. I'm your host, along with special guests, Dr. Michael Berry of the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Catherine Seely Radke, a professor of chemistry and biochemistry, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Dr. Berry is professor of medicine and consultant in the Division of Infectious Diseases, Department of Internal Medicine at Mayo Clinic. He's also a consultant in the Departments of Immunology and Molecular Medicine. It is a pleasure having you both here. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Happy to be here also. I mentioned in the introduction that the public did get a crash course in virology during the height of the pandemic. And as a journalist, so did my colleagues. We were all trying to figure out how to cover this story. How do you explain to a general audience the challenges in dealing with viruses? Dr. Berry? Well, you know, we've dealt with these ourselves over our entire evolutionary history. And as, you know, individuals, most of the time we get infected with things and we can shrug it off with our immune system and survive it. It's some of these viruses, particularly when they jump from other species that are particularly dangerous. And uh, SARS-CoV-2 is, you know, a great example of that. So challenges, how do you do this? How do you do it fast? Respond quickly when, you know, you have a number of regulations to protect humans, patients from drugs and vaccines. And how do you do that quickly? Fortunately, in this case, we're on the vaccine side, you're able to build on actually decades of prior experience with even the first SARS virus. So we could kind of just use those lessons learned and move quickly on that front. Dr. Celie Radke. Yeah, I think one of the reasons it's so challenging to target viruses is that they have a propensity to mutate. They're very smart. I like to tell my students, they know you're trying to, to kill them, so they figure out a way to get around that. And that comes from this development of resistance and the these emergence of the variants. That becomes very difficult and challenging to quickly sort of change direction to attack that new strain that comes out. The bottom line was we weren't prepared in terms of having drugs stockpiled, having things available that could be distributed globally. You know, there's a lot of issues with vaccine and drug inequities in the global area and reaching rural markets and places where people didn't have access to get to a hospital or to get treatment when they needed it. And we also travel a lot more than we did in previous times. And so this helped it spread much, much more rapidly than, you know, we've seen with previous outbreaks in throughout history. As we've seen during the pandemic, and Dr. Barry, you touched on this a little bit, that the work, even dealing with other viruses, focuses on vaccines and therapeutics. What are the unique differences in these approaches? How do they complement each other? Well, it's always said that vaccines are the most cost-effective medical intervention we have. And so you can look back in history and see how the development of uh, measles vaccine or polio vaccine took a big level of 
infection and death and then immediately squashed it down to a background level. So, you know, there's a lot of historical lessons that have been learned of how to make vaccines, but at the same time, there's many different ways to do those. So, you know, the advantage is we've been battling viruses for a long time. Some are easier to defeat with a vaccine or an antiviral drug because of their thousands of different viruses, and they're all like a box of chocolates. Each one's quite different. SARS-CoV-2 is a different animal, and so, it, you know, it's fighting us, and we also have the problem that there's a lot more humans infected with it, so we're kind of giving it some free reign to try and uh, hide from us what we do to it. Dr. Stanley Radke, there's still no vaccine to prevent other viruses such as um, HIV, AIDS, Zika, even norovirus, the cruise ship virus, you know, even after decades of research. And And I'm wondering, as you know, vaccines, as great as they are, have limitations. Was there too much attention, do you think, to being paid to develop the COVID vaccine versus work on antivirals? Well, both are needed. The vaccines are very, very important for protecting us, but there are a lot of people that for medical reasons cannot get a vaccine. We also have healthcare workers and others that are exposed to the virus constantly. And so we need prophylactics as well. And that can be done by small molecules. As someone who's been working in antivirals for many years, it was very difficult to get funding for certain things, in particular coronaviruses. And I think this really has woken many people up to the fact that we need to be better prepared next time. We need to be proactive instead of always reactive. And the antivirals have some advantages because we know that the vaccines protect us, but the antivirus, they don't kill the virus. They don't stop the virus from replicating where the drugs can do that. And that in particular is the focus of several different, very important funding initiatives right now, particularly from NIH and the Gates Foundation. And I think those are going to be very important because they're focused on developing small molecule, broad spectrum, orally bioavailable drugs. In other words, drugs that can be taken as a pill, can be stockpiled, and can be distributed very readily in the face of an outbreak of any type of virus. Many of these viruses have very similar binding sites where the drugs can go in and bind and interrupt that replication. And so we do have the possibility for creating broad spectrum inhibitors. And I think those are very, very important and something that we should have paid much more attention to in previous years. Dr. Berry, what do you think of that? I think, you know, it's we need every tool we have. You know, you don't fix a car with a hammer. You have a whole toolbox. So, you know, the vaccines can complement and overlap the ability to protect or rescue people that are infected with different viruses. The holy grail for a vaccine, and it's one that you hear a lot in terms of, you know, what you want from a COVID vaccine is to prevent any infection. So if you have a vaccine that makes these things called the antibodies, these antibody proteins can go grab the virus before it gets in the cell and stop the infection. That's a really high bar to set. So once a virus gets inside the cell, then you could tap certain resources in the immune system that vaccines will activate, but you also 
could use antivirals to stop the infection early, maybe even prophylactically. I think the challenge is there are thousands of different viruses, and it's hard to say who's going to jump out of the woods at us. It'd be pretty hard to develop 100 different vaccines and not use them. We make vaccines of my lab. Well, we did an Ebola vaccine, we did a Zika vaccine, and those two sort of flamed out and we didn't need them. But it's still, we should be preparing just in case. It'd be great to have a small molecule drug that you could take and not have to worry about getting COVID at all. Think back to March of 2020, we didn't even know people were dying and we were desperate for anything. And so if we already had that drug or that vaccine in place, just imagine where else we'd be now. Because I'm not an expert in this at all, but I was reading about programmable antivirals that target a virus's genomic structure. And the aim is to use the, the virus's own biology against itself, which would limit its ability to mutate to escape the effect of of a drug. Where are we on that? I think people are definitely making progress in that area, but it's much more difficult to design those because you don't have as much information where with small molecules like nucleosides or protease inhibitors, we know a lot about their binding sites. We know what their mechanism of action is. It's very predictable. We have a lot of computational data with crystal structures that can sort of be used to design drugs, where with the approach that you're talking about, we don't have as much structural information. It's more difficult to design these to work effectively. Dr. Berry, any comment? Well, I mean, if we're talking about a a very specific targeted thing to knock out a virus, you know, in the same way that SARS can... uh, mutate to avoid some of the vaccine protection that could theoretically also mutate, you know, certain very targeted things, you know, high specificity can be very powerful, but, you know, if you can sidestep it, you lose some of the potency. Say, can I ask, what is the technology that's driving the advancements in this field? Uh, Well, I can only speak to the vaccine side. Kathy, do you want to comment on the more the molecular side? Sure. As I mentioned, a number of the funding agencies, in particular NIAID, NIH, and the Gates Foundation, have developed these Centers for Pathogens and Pandemic Concerns, the AVID grants that came out last year. Gates Foundation has a similar one. I think its acronym is PAD. And the idea is to create these centers where you have pretty much anybody who's involved in the drug development process, including chemists, virologists, molecular biologists, as well as industry people that are all working together to fast track getting these these small molecules made. And the most important thing, of course, is this idea of broad spectrum inhibition, where we can take advantage of the fact that many of these RNA viruses have very similar structures to their binding sites. There's a lot of homology there. And so what you may not have identical activity against these viruses, but if you can develop something that has activity against a number of different viruses, whether it be within a family or across viral families, and we've actually shown you can do that with compounds from my laboratory and others, this would give us really a new technology to not only 
be more ready for any outbreak that might come out next. Also, some of these molecules, including ours, have the ability to sort of reposition and reorient in a binding site. So when they're confronted with a mutation that the virus is going to happen, because <laughs> that's what they do, they like to mutate, it can sort of reposition and engage secondary amino acid residues that weren't previously involved in the former mechanism of action, and they stay active. And we've shown this, that this ability to impart flexibility to the nucleoside keeps them active when the normal rigid molecule is rendered useless. What are the challenges to that technology? <laughs> Selectivity. <laughs> I will say this, they are not non-selective. We were surprised. We thought when I first introduced these years many, many years ago that we would have a problem with selectivity and we don't. I like to liken it to dance partners. Some dance partners have beautiful harmony and others don't. And we see this with different viruses. They don't work against everything. They work against some and not others. They work better for others and not some. That was the biggest challenge. And I think the other challenge, of course, was getting funding. But fortunately, the one good thing that came out of this is now we have a focus to finally fund antiviral research the way we should have been doing for some time. And so we're very fortunate to be part of one of the nine AVID centers. We're in the UNC group. And so we finally have the funds to really make progress on this. And Dr. Berry, what are the challenges facing what you're doing in your lab? SARS, like you hear about it mutating and sort of circling back to what Kathy was talking about, some parts of the virus cannot be mutated. If it mutates, changes that, it can no longer function. And so there, those are the sweet spots where you might find a small molecule to hit that and, you know, the virus cannot avoid it. Likewise, with the vaccines, there are parts of the virus that cannot also be mutated. And so right now, all the vaccines have been in humans are all focused on one protein called the spike, which is the protein that coats the virus surface and it uses to get into cells. And so work of others and some of our colleagues is looking at the spike is only 20% of the whole virus is all the proteins it has. So looking at trying to generate immune responses at all these other ones that maybe can't be mutated is a way to also kind of control uh, the virus as it spreads. The good news is we have the luxury of looking back and being able to criticize well, that vaccine is not as good as it could be, but you know that's the luxury of being a survivor. <laughs> They're still awesome. As far as I know, the last CDC data would still say that if you've been vaccinated, you're about six times less likely to die from COVID. For me, that's a great win, even if they're not perfect. You know what I was wondering as I was getting ready for our conversation today, with the work that's been done on the COVID-19 vaccines, is the door open now for the development of, say, cancer vaccines? Absolutely. There has been so much work done on these mRNA vaccines not only for cancer, but also for new viruses. There was just a, an article a couple of weeks ago in Chemical Engineering News showing that they're working on like 30 other viruses as well as cancers to use these messenger RNA vaccines to sort of go after them. The technology that they developed through COVID and that had been worked on for a long time, as Michael said, this really gave us sort of a a jump start to now use that for other things. 
Mm, pretty exciting, isn't it, Dr. Berry? Yeah. And I mean, and obviously the companies that developed the mRNA vaccines now have a lot of bank behind them to pursue a lot of these things. But any technology has its strengths and weaknesses. You know, head-to-head mRNA vaccines are good. They're fast. That's awesome. They probably weren't deployed as fast as they could be. It would have been nice to have a Delta vaccine and a Gamma vaccine as we progressed. So that was a little disappointing. Yeah, so they're going after a lot of different cancers. There's other vaccine technologies that also go after cancer or other infectious agents. The commercialization of some things, though, does have a downside of in terms of if you're an academic and, you know, another commercial group is much better funded than you, it's probably going to be a little harder to compete in certain areas. So I'd like to know from your perspective, Dr. Berry, what's Mayo doing to advance what we're talking about here today? Well, on the vaccine side, uh, Mayo actually did a lot of funding of many different COVID-19 projects uh, back in 2020. And they just, uh, I think as of about a week ago, just closed the uh, Mayo COVID task force. And so some of the work we did on vaccine development was funded by Mayo. And there was also a lot of antiviral screening. And Mayo is also a clinic of, you know, how do you deliver care to patients in a safe way. And so there's a lot of kind of healthcare delivery research as well. I also like to ask personal questions uh, during the course of our conversations with this podcast. And I'm curious if there was a precipitating event in your life or uh, something that you saw in the world that made you think that this area of research was necessary, that, that got you, that spurred you to get involved in virology. Dr. Radke, what would that be for you? I originally started off being interested in genetics and then happened to switch professors in grad school and started working with a medicinal chemist. My PhD advisor was a medicinal chemist. And I just was fascinated with this because viruses are constantly emerging. And although he didn't take it as far as working on only viruses, he also worked on other things as well. But When I started my independent career, it was just such a fascinating challenge because of the development of resistance and also the constant emerging of new or re-emerging infectious diseases. And I never wanted to do any kind of theoretical research. I always wanted to do very much applied. For me, it was like, maybe someday I'll get lucky and actually have something that would, would get to clinic. So that's what has kept us going all these years. And I think the other thing, too, is because I've worked in nucleosides my whole career, is that we've had such success with nucleosides. They really are the cornerstone of antiviral research. And so finding a new scaffold was also something that drove me, was this idea that we created this very unique scaffold early on in my career. It's seeing fruition now. (laughs) After all this time, that's got to feel really good. Exactly, exactly. It's funny, there was a reporter last year who did a feature article on me for the Baltimore Sun. And she said, how's it feel to be 64 and at the pinnacle of your career? (laughs) And I I was, well, first of all, why did you call out my age? Secondly, (laughs) is this it? Is it all downhill from here? And fortunately, not too long after that, we were given the AVID the grant, which is millions of dollars. And so it was like, okay, I clearly am not 
at the pinnacle. <laughs> There's more to go. <laughs> There's clearly more work to do. And, oh, absolutely. And, and so where do you think nucleosides will be going in the future, this framework? Well, I think one of the other things that has been super important in, in terms of successes, for example, if you think about HIV, we now have it to undetectable levels. People can live normal lives. And part of that is due to nucleosides and other small molecule and these combination drugs. And so I think the fact that nucleosides have this ability to be used in these combinations so effectively, now that's what we're looking for in terms of these other viruses. Say, Dr. Berry, I don't want to leave you out of the conversation here. I want to know what got you involved in your area of research? You could say I learned virology on the streets. I come at it actually using virus as therapies or vaccines themselves. And so we do some gene therapy stuff and cancer killing viruses and as well as vaccines. And in the work we do, we study viruses in order to translate them and make them do good things rather than bad things. And so in this course of studying these over many years, it's really remarkable, you know, what evolution has built and just the complexity. And it's just a constant challenge to try to keep learning and keep them up. So it's a, a great uh, joy. Sometimes people say, oh, you're a scientist, you do the same thing every day. And it's like, no, it's different every day. You're the one that does everything, <laughs> the same thing every day. Yeah, so it's a great pleasure. Was there a precipitating event in your life, in your career that got you into this? I was a chemistry major and was tremendously bored. And I spent a summer working in a cancer lab and went, oh, well, this biology stuff is really cool. So that would probably be the event. Say, before we go, I'd like to know for listeners, and, and we have a, a, a wide-ranging audience of experts and just general public individuals who are interested in the topic. What do you hope that this topic will have added to science and healthcare in the next, say, 20 years? Dr. Berry? It'd be nice if we could come back and trust what we're doing and that we have, in terms of making vaccines or antivirals, that we really are trying to protect people and help them. Sometimes scientists are not the, I'm a good example, not the best communicators. I hope we come out of this and we can kind of re regain some of that with the, the general public. Yeah, I would second that. I'm actually president of the International Society for Antiviral Research, and this is an international organization. And we have virologists, chemists, biologists, you name it, in the society. And one of the things that has concerned us for many years is the public trust. We need to have the public trust us as scientists. We saw this come to the forefront with vaccine hesitancy and things like that. And so I think what we would like is exactly what Michael just said, is to see that public trust come back, have people trust scientists, have people want to go to pursue careers in science and to help us fight the good fight against these viruses and cancers and parasites and, and all the other diseases that we are faced with. How do you think that the public trust can be repaired? Just curious. Well, I think we have to be good communicators and we have to, we have to tell the truth, the good with the bad. And hopefully we can drown out some of the haters <laughs> with the right messages. 
And, and finally, as we look maybe say 10, 20 years down the road, which I know, you know, researchers hate to look into crystal balls, but you, you're doing the work right now. Where do you think some of the breakthroughs will come? Dr. Barry? It's very nice. You have a head cold and you go, do I have COVID? And you do a test. So I think it'd be awesome to take that and basically tap into it and go, we'll find out any virus or any bacteria you're infected with using sort of individualized diagnostics. And then, you know, ideally that uploads to your doctor and then uh, you have a, a nice battery of antivirals sitting there or antibacterials or maybe even vaccines to combat it. So it's really individualized, targeted, and you're not like accidentally or unintentionally treating using antibiotics to treat a virus, which won't work, and you're just ruining the use of the antibiotics. So that would be what I would hope. Dr. Celia Radke? I agree. We have to come up with maybe new targets. For example, you know, you were talking about one, and and one of the things that's similar to what I think you were referring to are Protax. This is a way to cause the virus to actually kill itself. And it's very, very difficult to target and to design, similar to what we were talking about earlier. And I think, but those I think have great potential. I think if we can be more successful in developing, you know, more broad spectrum inhibitors and also becoming more aware of these zoonotic diseases and the propensity for them to jump, we have to be more vigilant about those kinds of things, really from back to ground zero in terms of watching out for those types of viruses jumping from animal to human and trying to limit that. And I, I think that's an important aspect that I think people sort of maybe don't realize how much we've encroached upon their habitat. We have to be able to sort of have an arsenal ready when that happens. And I think that's going to be the key is to have that arsenal ready, not just one or two drugs, but, you know, a, a broad panel, as Michael said. Really interesting stuff. And you two are fantastic. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking to Dr. Michael Berry of the Mayo Clinic and Dr. Catherine Seely Ratke, a professor of chemistry and biochemistry at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Dr. Berry is the professor of medicine and a consultant in the Division of Infectious Diseases, Department of Internal Medicine at Mayo, also a consultant in the Departments of Immunology and Molecular Medicine. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Pursuit of Precision, the Science Advancing Individualized Medicine. If you have questions or comments about what you heard today, do send us an email. It is precisionpod, P-O-D, precisionpod, at mayo.edu. And for goodness sakes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We will have future conversations about a number of different topics in precision medicine. If you have questions or comments about what you heard today, do send us an email. It is precisionpod, P-O-D, precisionpod, at mayo.edu. And for goodness sakes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We will have future conversations about a number of different topics in precision medicine. I'm Kathy Worzer. Until next time, here's to your health and well-being.